Welcome to MLM.com podcast. This is Nancy Tobler. I'm guest hosting for Kenny Rollins. Today we have Spencer Reese, who is a lawyer with the law firm of Reese, Poifair, and Richards. He has been in the direct selling space, a multi-level marketing space, since 1986. He's been a regular participant on MLM.com as well as on our podcast, and we're very grateful to have you here with us today. Spencer, you always get a great response of listeners. It's been a year, I think, since we talked to you last, so I thought we should check in and see what the legal climate is like. How, uh, tell us what you know. Sure. Well, I certainly will. And, and Nancy, thanks as always for, for having me on the podcast here. It's always truly my pleasure. Um, we've been seeing actually a lot going on in the civil arena in the, with the class actions in the last year or so. Um, certainly the civil actions have been more active than the regulatory climate. Um, we have seen some state actions, but the, um, at the federal level, we aren't seeing a lot in the way of pyramid claims. What we are seeing is that the FTC has shifted their focus. I think I spoke about this last time. The FTC has shifted their focus somewhat from pursuing pyramid claims against network marketing businesses to pursuing claims just based on deceptive income representations. They've, <clears throat> the FTC has figured out that that's much lower-hanging fruit, and those cases are much easier to bring, far, far less complicated than pyramid actions. Um, pyramid, the, the standard of proof since the Burn Lounge case was decided by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the standard of proof that the FTC has to meet is considerably higher than it used to be. And consequently, the FTC has figured out that, you know what, we can get the relief we're after simply by bringing in a deceptive income claim case. And that's much easier to prove. So that's the avenue that they've been pursuing. But on the civil side, in the class actions, we're still seeing the pyramid cases or pyramid claims being alleged. And, and more traditional pyramid and RICO claims, those are still certainly uh, front and center. Now, what's driving that is the plaintiff's bar. There's, there's one or two law firms that are primarily responsible for filing a number of class action cases. I wish I knew how they were financing them. Class actions are not easy. They're not cheap. Um, you know, the, the, what a plaintiff's lawyer hopes for is to get a quick settlement so they can move on to the next. Now, I don't know how they're financing these cases. It's, it's uh, smaller firms that have been bringing them, so they're not well bankrolled. I know that. Um, but you know, I know they've settled one or two, and maybe they're using those funds to, to bankroll the other cases that they brought. Um, so in a civil case, really, they allege they're uh -huh. a pyramid. Correct. Is that, is that yes. the, and they just try to get a lot of, of plaintiffs on one case. Isn't that how that works? Yeah, what happens in a class action case is that you have to have a large number of people in that are purportedly similarly situated. And then you, you file your claim and say, hey, these people are similarly situated. They've all been damaged relatively the same, and by the same conduct, you know, one plaintiff, one individual, or a smaller group of individuals will be the designated plaintiffs on behalf of an entire class. Now, the way that they work and, and the leverage that they have is that you know, they make these allegations of a pyramid scheme, which is obviously a highly illegal 
Um, they make these allegations, but then because it's a class, they'll try to get the class certified. That is, the court says, yes, this is a class of, of individuals that are similarly situated. And then you have to send notice out to the entire class. So, for example, they'll say a class consists of all individuals who recruited and became a distributor for Company X uh, during the, the year 2015 through 2019. That could be a lot of people. Right. Um, just depends on how much the company has grown, and, and chances are it's going to be a, a company that's been a fast grower because a small company is not a viable target for a class action. Right. You know, we just don't have any resources. Um, but that's what what we see. Um, you know, they bring these these class cases. Notice goes out to the class. That is, they have to be issued notice of of this uh, allegation that there is a claim against the company that's a pyramid scheme. And of course, once notice goes out to the class with a claim like that, it really damages the company's reputation. Oh, and so absolutely. the companies don't want that. Yeah, the companies don't want that notice to go out. So what happens? is that that gives the plaintiff's attorneys uh, considerable leverage to settle the case and get their money and move on. Right. That's the lay of the land of these things. I mean, nobody ever wants to litigate, actually take one of these things to trial. I mean, they're extremely expensive, very cumbersome, um, and the negative publicity and the damage to the business that can occur from notice going out to the class is huge. So there's a lot of pressure to settle, and that's what happens. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Whether there's anything um, legitimate in the claim or not, right? That it, you're going to exactly. settle. You just want you just want to keep your name out of the paper. Exactly. Well, and keep your name from being sent to every distributor that you may be a pyramid. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. well, a problem. That's exactly right. I mean, the stakes are so incredibly high that the pressure to settle is enormous on companies, and and that's what the plaintiffs' lawyers are banking on. So they just want to get a, a quick settlement and and move on. Yeah, that's interesting. I had noticed in the last couple of years we've had more uh, class action. I hadn't uh, I hadn't thought of that as a way to shut down a company, but I think it, it it certainly has a way to damage a company's reputation. Maybe not shut it down like the FTC can, but certainly right. a, a serious uh, a problem, a public relations problem. Absolutely, absolutely. And anymore, I mean, it's we certainly have legal battles, but anymore, the real battle is in the court of public opinion. Right. And that's you know where if a company's reputation is damaged in that regard, then it's over for them. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that um, a company, since the Herbalife case, uh, really should be moving towards more customers and more. Uh, documentation of, of training. Have you seen that sort of shift since the Herbalife case? You know, it's interesting that you ask that. I have not seen a greater emphasis on that from a legal slash regulatory perspective, but that was a very, very strong uh, pull prior to Herbalife. Uh, that's been the attitude of the FTC since 2004, they issued their advisory opinion, and it was highly, highly focused on driving customers. In fact, that actually came out in the Omnitrition case back in 1996, and so we've had that heavy focus on being customer-oriented and customer-driven. Essentially, that dates back to 1996 rather than 
you know, just Herbalife, but right. it certainly became the focus of the Herbalife case. Have you seen companies uh, move more in that direction, or not? it's not something really that you end up uh, dealing with? You know, with? it's interesting. Everybody is trying to figure out how to crack that. I have seen several that have taken really true material measures to drive their uh, customer sales. Most of what I have seen, however, is companies simply trying to repackage what they're already doing. They really don't want to change much, just uh, change their nomenclature, but do business the same way, which, you know, in my opinion, that's just putting lipstick on a pig. It's (laughs) not going to change the fundamental nature of it. but, but, but there have been several sizable companies that I've seen make material changes trying to become more customer-oriented. You know, I always tell clients, look, you can do it voluntarily or you can have it shoved down your throat like uh, Vina and Herbalife did. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You, you and Kenny talked a little bit about this last time, uh, so we don't have to go into too much depth. But I think it just makes so much sense to have people sign up as customers if they're not sure that they want to do the business opportunity. Mm-hmm. Later on, then transfer them to be a, a distributor if they find themselves um, recruiting people because they're so passionate about the product. Then, yeah, become a distributor. Do it. But if you're not well, sure, that, don't do it. That's absolutely – I agree with that. The challenge we have – comes in in pricing strategies right and so many companies want to price their products on a tiered structure so that distributors get the lowest price and and distributors if they're on auto ship get the next lowest price but so everybody you know they they say that well these people are distributors they signed up to get the lowest price but if they have to convert them to customers, well, then they have to raise the price. And, and of course, you know, people know that the real price is the lowest price. That's the distributor price. Right. They have to fight that fight. I mean, honestly, I think that, that the best strategy is to have your preferred customer price being the lowest price. Yeah. And that way, if somebody wants to be a preferred customer, great, they get the best price. If they want to be a distributor, they you know, they still would have to be a preferred customer to get the lowest price, but then they'd also have to pay some other additional fees, such as a you know, replicated website, back right. office, a technology fee, or something right. like that, a starter right. kit. Right. You know. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I think I've only heard of one company that actually does that that I know of, but mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, it it makes sense to me. I, I think mm-hmm. um, it, it really helps – uh, solve sort of the the income claims problem that we talked about earlier, right? That y- you you have a clearer distinction between what's a customer and what's a distributor, so it, the income can be an average of of people who actually run the business, not people who are customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in my opinion, it all comes back to income claims again. Why is everybody enrolling as a distributor in the first place? Is it really to get the lowest price, or is it because they were enticed? to join by virtue of income claims. You know, I, I have a, an opinion on that. Um, and and I, my opinion is that most people are joining because they're induced to do so based on the income claim. If, if that were not the case, then it would be a lot easier to have your lowest price be the preferred customer price. More people would be motivated to buy for the products based on the, the lowest price. Yeah. We just don't see that. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Back to where we started on this call, the FTC is going after income claims. Do you think part of the reason for that shift is because it makes it so easy to catch them because of technology? 
they're on social media and they're have their blogs and they're making these claims out in the open or where it's recorded? Is that why the FTC is going after income claims? Well, I, I think there, there's a variety of reasons. One, they've, they've been going after income claims forever. Well, I mean, that's Any time you have a, a pyramid claim, there's also been an income claim, uh, sure. fraudulent income claim allegation in the complaint as well. But in addition to that, yes, they're very easy to find. They're extremely easy to find. Social media, they just log into some distributor's social media page, and, and there's the income claims right there. They print the page off. they got the evidence they need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what, I mean, do you think companies, you talked about this last time, do you think companies are doing a better job at training or it's still an issue? Oh, I think they're overall doing a relatively poor job of training. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, there's the desire to do so, but the unfortunate reality from what I've seen is that too many executives sit in their offices and, and dictate what they think should be policy, but they don't get out in the field and see actually how the business is done. They're removed from reality or have become removed from reality in that regard. They'd like to think that, that their products are driving the sales, but they're kidding themselves. Uh, that's my opinion. Um, yeah. And, and I think to, to they need to get an accurate picture. They need to get out in the field and then actually attend their distributor meetings and see what's actually going on. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they certainly can do a better job of monitoring what happens, you know, on the Internet uh, through technology. But I think, like you say, just to get out into the field and find out what happens, I think, could be quite eye-opening. Uh, I, I, so, the, yeah, I, I think there are things we can do better as an industry. I mm -hmm. think having mm -hmm. more customers is – it just makes t total sense to me. I must uh, – um, shake my head about that uh, on a regular basis. Why not just make them customers? That's what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, that then, mm -hmm. then you can be more transparent in your reporting and, and uh, mm -hmm. your income claims can be more realistic. Um, but I think we can do a better job of training too. Technology makes training so easy now. Uh, and it, it also makes it easy to keep track of who's been trained. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it, I think it goes beyond training. We have to identify what do we need to train on, and, and that means we have to identify what are the fundamental issues that we're dealing with. That's what I think the real issue is. And, and so what am I talking about? I'm talking about, well, let's define ourselves and figure out who our competitors are. Right. So what are we going to train on? I mean, if, if we need to train people on getting more customers, well, who are we competing against? Well, in my opinion, from a customer perspective, if you're product-oriented, your biggest competitor is Amazon. Yeah. And let's face it, Amazon, yeah. you can get anything you want. You can get next-day shipping. If you're a Prime member, you can get the best price. I mean, they've got stainless steel precision when it comes to operations. Yeah. Um, you know, so you're competing against Amazon. If your program is primarily uh, opportunity-driven, your main competitors are the gig economy, you know, the Ubers, yeah. the Lyfts, the yeah. – the Airbnbs, I mean, they will generate immediate cash. You won't necessarily be profitable. That question is the profitability of those business models, but you can certainly get some cash flow going right. and get it going quickly. Right. You know, yeah, I, I think it's I interesting. Think that, Uber drivers, 50% uh, of them drive one to five hours a week, and on average mm -hmm. they make about $25 an hour. And you think about, well, at least what Mark Rollins has always said, people want to make 200 to $500 a month. Well, that 
gig economy model is proving that, right? You, how do well, you get yeah. distributors I mean, to $200 to $500 a month is, I think, a big question that companies should be asking themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, but, you know, the reality of, of the gig economy is, okay, you made 500 bucks a month with cash flow, but, but you know, by the time you depreciate your car, right? holy smokes, you're in the hole. But yeah. anyway, that's, that's a whole different subject. Yeah, that is. <laughs> it is an interesting yeah. topic, too, but... Thank you, Spencer. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. I know you're busy, and we always appreciate your expertise. And I think the class action information, I'm going to go and do a little reading on it, in fact, based on your insight here today. I think that is an issue. And I don't know what companies can do for that. Do you? Maybe our final thought could be what can companies do to sort of protect themselves against class action? Well, there's there, there are actually things you can do. I mean, the the Best protection is also completely unpalatable, and that is not to be financially successful. Don't make yourself a target. (laughs) (laughs) That that doesn't work. What plaintiff's lawyer is going to file a class action case against a company that can't afford to pay anything anyway? Right. That that would be stupid. Yeah. But you can have an effective class action waiver in your contract. Now, you got to do it right. Um, Not easy, but you can do it, and and courts have upheld them. Um, Oh. So that would be, I think, your first line of defense. You know, have a, a class action waiver, whether you have an arbitration provision, which I encourage, or you know, you allow people to, to file a litigation in court. Either way, you you input an effective class action waiver in the in the agreement, and uh, that would be your first line of defense. Yeah, you see it everywhere, right? When you go into mm-hmm. your doctor's office, you sign a, a waiver. You say you'll first uh, do arbitration, so mm-hmm. there are not very many places where we don't uh, sign something up front that says we won't we won't go to court. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right, Nancy, well, you have a wonderful day. You too. This has been the MLM.com podcast. I'm Nancy Tobler, your guest host. We are very grateful to Spencer Reese for spending some time with us today. He's enlightened us on the use of class action suits as a way to get at companies and uh, ruin reputations, essentially. That's the way a class action lawsuit works. And his information is very useful uh, as to how you might avoid uh, or at least minimize the potential of class action. We appreciate you also as listeners, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, make a comment. Tell us what you want to hear more about and like us, share us. Uh, We appreciate you as listeners. Thank you.